We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for FlexBox, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights, strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. We invite you to join us as we discuss how to shift the classroom, the learning environment, the mindset, and the pedagogy to try something new, reignite wonder, and reimagine education. If you are in the Bay Area, we are currently accepting applications for students for the fall of 2023. Yes, we have limited spots available, and also for our elementary and middle school starting at TK through seventh grade for fall of 2024. Up Academy has created our framework so that new and existing schools can develop imaginative, exciting, relevant, engaging learning environments for all of their students. We're excited to introduce the Rebel Project Literacy Curriculum. It's a fully integrated literacy and project-based learning curriculum that supports social-emotional development and is based on skills and competencies. Learn more at projectup.us. Have you ever thought of opening your own school? Project Up is also supporting new educators and families to create schools like Up Academy and schools of your own design. Reach out to join our affiliate network at projectup.us. Now, let's get to today's episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Richard Gerver. He is a sought-after speaker, best-selling author, and world-renowned thinker. His career began in education, first as a teacher and then as a school principal, when he turned the fortunes of a failing school and its pupils around in just two years. Since the success of his first book, focusing on his experience in frontline education, Richard has devoted himself to advancing society's thinking on learning, change, and how to best realize our full potential. He has since written several books on leadership and innovation, including the bestsellers Change and Simple Thinking. Now regarded as one of the world's leading thinkers on human leadership and organizational transformation, Richard has worked with an extraordinary range of people, from elite athletes to former U.S. President Barack Obama. Named UK Business Speaker of the Year, 
three times, Richard has been invited to speak on the world's most recognized stages, including TED, the RSA, and the BBC. Welcome, Richard. I'm super excited to have this conversation. It's great to be here, Tanya. And by the way, thanks very much for reading out my mum's emailed introduction. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't sound like me at all. It's really funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to hear all of the things that you've done put into three paragraphs. Yeah, unbelievable. Absolutely (laughs) unbelievable. (laughs) A lot of it's on your website too. So listeners, if you want to go check out, I believe it's richardgerver.com. You can read the same introduction there. (laughs) Yeah, they can. And they can have a look at my horrible face. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So one of your early books was on creating tomorrow's schools today. Yeah. I founded an elementary school about five years ago, and we're really focused on how do we create education for a future. And so can you share a little insight of kind of the core thinking of that book and how we can shift education to be focused on really what we need for tomorrow instead of today? Absolutely. So that was my first book. And it's it's funny, really, it was never supposed to be a book. So when I finished my job as a school principal, my mentor, Sir Ken Robinson, said to me, you really need to write down everything you've done just so you can remember it, because the further away you go from it, the more it'll fade away. So I kind of wrote it originally as a memoir. And so the the purpose of the book really was originally just for me to record my own passion for education, what I felt it needed to be, where I felt it needed to change. And then The second half of the book was how we, my community, applied that in the school that I was principal of that you kindly mentioned in the introduction. And so it kind of tells that story, really. So it's the big ideology and then the pragmatism. And for me, I think looking back on it now, when it finally became a book, when publishers persuaded us that really it needed to be published, it was a book of its time. It was about the school's story, which was 2001 to 2008. But I look at it now, and it's as relevant now as it's ever been, it seems to me. You know, we were leading an education system. I found a school which was so preoccupied with believing the future of education was about just making what we've always done work more efficiently, that the children were becoming more and more alienated. It was a school in an area of severe social deprivation. The teaching staff, who were incredibly passionate, committed professionals, many of whom had been teaching for the best part of three decades, some even nearer four decades, had become increasingly disenfranchised, deprofessionalized, and felt that they were just applying systems and structures that were handed down from on high into a community that didn't really see its purpose and value. And as a result, this school had become, over a period of nearly a decade, it had just declined and descended into despair, I suppose. And so the book and my philosophy, which evolved from it or vice versa, was really about how do you reenfranchise a community? How do you make teachers and staff feel professional, feel valid, feel that their experiences, their expertise, and their passion matters? And how do you create a school where the young people, the students, the entire community, including the parents and the carers, felt that what was happening in that school was relevant and of value? 
So that really, the book recorded all of that colossal thinking that took place over a seven-year span. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with EdTech? Tools that assume every student learns the same way at the same pace. I need my technology to do more for me. That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K-12 curriculum and that it's proven benefit to all student populations, including English learners and students in special education programs. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results, combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com B for a demo. That's IXL.com B-E. So let's step backwards a minute. If that book was a memoir, and I'm, I'm super fascinated, I want to hear how we came from, like how you got into education to how Sir Ken Robinson ended up as your mentor. That one caught my attention. But if that book was a memoir of that time, can you kind of share where you started? How did your career in education begin and until you got to that point? So my career in education, I, in fact, my whole career, right the way through, I describe as a series of happy accidents that can, in hindsight, be defined by love. Because when I went to college, I had no desire to work in education. I'd hated the final few years of my school career and actually was passionate about drama, acting, performance, language, writing. Those were the things that made my heart beat faster. But towards the end of my first year at university, I met a young woman who I desperately wanted to score a date with. Anyway, I met her in the student union one night, and it turns out that she was training to be a teacher. This is typical of young teenagers, I guess, who are desperate to score a date. I turned around to her and I said, uh, so what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm about to finish my degree. I'm training to be a teacher. Now, just to put a bit of context on that, I came late to college because I actually spent two years trying to make it as a young actor before deciding to go back to college. So I was, if you like, two years back. So she was coming to the end of her university career. She said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a teacher. And and just in that senseless, stupid, superficial way, I said, oh, teaching, what an amazing job. God, I so respect you. That's incredible. I've always thought teachers are amazing. <laughs> anyway, the stupidity must have worked because I got a date and we were still together when I finished my degree. And she said, look, I remember when we started dating, you told me how wonderful teaching was. So I've signed you up for a postgraduate teaching qualification course. Anyway, just to loop all the way forward before I go right the way back. It must have worked somewhere along the line because we're about to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. So it all seemed to work out in the end. Anyway, that's how I got into teaching. So you got a date and became a teacher. I, I know. You, it's like win-win-win. <laughs> everything stemmed from that one evening. It's amazing what comes from a beer in a student union bar, desperately trying to score a date with somebody you believe could just be a fantastic night out. And there we are. So yeah, my life was hinged on that moment. And it was funny because when I started going into classrooms, having never considered teaching, it was genuinely an epiphany. You know, I walked into a classroom and I taught um, elementary, primary age children through to 11. 
And I remember walking into those classrooms thinking, how did I never believe this was where I should be? So it wasn't one of those kind of fake things. Once I walked in and crossed the threshold of a school, it was one of those weird things where you just thought, this is where I belonged. And having been quite a rebellious teenager, it was quite an epiphany for me. I suddenly thought, oh my God, all my skills, all my passions, all the things I really care about can really make a difference. And I love these kids, you know? And so that's how my teaching career began. I kind of climbed through the system quite quickly, not because I was ambitious or skillful, but I always found myself in the right place at the right time. Anyway, to fast forward. So after a few years, the government seconded me. I developed a bit of a reputation for doing quite innovative stuff, particularly around reading and writing. And I had been seconded by the government to try and develop a program to remotivate, particularly demotivated boys and girls in reading and writing. And I was asked to try and get some schools in the UK that were failing on board, walked into one particular school. And for the second time in my life, a career defining moment of love happened. I absolutely fell in love with this school. It was a school at the bottom of the league tables nationally. It was doing so badly, the British government had slated it for closure. And I walked in and fell in love. And to my benefit, there had been no school principal permanently in place for 18 months. The last school principal had been signed off on long-term sick. There had been eight principals in 10 years. It was a real disaster zone. I met the acting principal who had been assistant principal for 34 years. She had no desire to take on the job and um, fell in love, went back to the government. And I said, look, when that job comes up, you need to let me know because I just have a feeling. I wasn't even looking for a principal's job at the time. I just, I said, look, I just, I belong there. You know, in the same way that when people go house hunting, you can see 12 properties that on plan all look exactly the same, but you walk into one and something weirdly spiritual happens that just makes you feel that's where you want to have Christmases and Thanksgivings and births and, you know, all the rest of it. And that was the same kind of tingle and feeling I got. So I applied for the job and got it. I was very young. I was just 31. And the reason I got the job was not because I was talented, but because, as I said before, the school was so bad, I was the only applicant. So (laughs) frankly, the fact I was breathing was qualification enough to get me the job. And that's where it all began. And I think that the thing that was in my favor when I look back on it is that because the school had such a, a diabolical reputation, because it was slated for closure, we had nothing to lose as a community, which meant I went in there with the kind of ignorance and arrogance of a fresh young principal, having no idea what could happen to me if it all went wrong, and believing that what we could do would be magical. And of course, the thing was, there was no one to get in our way because there was no one in the community going, yeah, but we've got to hold on to what we have, or you know, the academics are good, or the reputation's great, because none of that existed, which is a wonderful platform on which to innovate. And so the whole journey began, Tanya, with me asking two questions. One may be daft on the surface, and one may be not so daft. The first question I asked was, how do we turn this school into somewhere as exciting as Disneyland? And the second was, what do we want our children to look like as human beings when they leave us? And what followed the community connection, the conversations, the innovation all stemmed from that moment. 
And as I say, because we were a school considered as bad as we were, there was no reticence in engaging in a very open and exciting level of conversation. Sounds like there have been several different spots in your life that have had a mix of luck and love and being in the right place at the right time, for sure. And definitely questions that we've asked, you know, as we've launched an elementary and now we go into launching a middle school is what do we want our students to be like when they come out? And not how can we make a Disneyland, but along the same lines, how can we make this really engaging and relevant and interesting and frankly fun for the students? So they want to be here. It reminds me, my background was in sales. And in sales, one of the things they say is, you know, the best way to have a good year is to have a really bad year first. And so when you walk into a situation that's already really bad, you're kind of set up for success, which is beautiful in a lot of ways. It's really funny you say that because when I was trying to make it as an actor before falling in love with the young woman who has tolerated me ever since, I had worked in below-the-line advertising and marketing for a couple of years when I had to earn a wage because I wasn't getting any acting jobs. One of the things that I was passionate about taking over Grange and the reason for the Disney question was really around sales. How do you make learning and education matter to young people so they buy it? And it was really interesting because I remember at the time there was a bit of controversy around my use of language, you know, marketing, sales. And actually, I don't see why, you know, because the one thing we know is that learning and education is the most powerful gift a civilized society can bestow on its young people. Yet the truth is a lot of the time, not just the children, but often their parents and some of the people in the wider community don't see its relevance and value. And it strikes me that actually we are complacent. We're often too complacent because we know how important education is and we don't spend enough time selling it to our customers who are our children. And really, the Disney question was that, you know, how do we create an education system that is so rich in experience and context that young people don't see what they're doing as some form of, you know, like a Catholic vision of purgatory, something you have to do before you get to heaven? You know what I mean? Because how often do young people and children think that education is just the thing you have to go through before you get to the good stuff and become an adult and actually get to live your life? Yeah, you just described my childhood. There you go, right? Mine too. <laughs> so many of us were that way. And how do you create an education environment where kids come in to learn every day because they don't just think it's something for tomorrow, but they're living in the moment? You know that the relevance and value and excitement is as much for today as it is for the future. Yeah, to do that requires a lot of change and change from our current system. And one of the things that you said before is the school was looking to do what they've always done, but do it more efficiently. And that's kind of been this industrial form of education that we've had for the past 150 years is how do we put kids through this mill of education and make it more efficient? And now, especially in the US, we're seeing post-pandemic, okay, we have learning loss, we have other issues, we have students struggling with mental health. And so let's give them more seat time and more math and take away the arts because they need to spend more time learning English and literature and less time on art because their scores are lower here. And it's something that we've seen not work. And so doing more of it is likely to create more not working. But we're so resistant to 
change. So that's a lot of the work that you do now. And you have a best-selling book by that name. But why do you see that change is so difficult? And how can we help leaders and our communities to embrace it? You know, it does stem back to our childhood and the way most of us are raised. From a very early age, we're taught that certainty is the currency of doing well. In other words, we were raised to believe that if you get your head down and do what you're told to do and you do it in the right way possible, your reward will be certainty. So as we get older, that reward includes, you know, you go through the education system, including for some people college, you come out the other side and that means you get a good job. And what we mean by a good job is a salary and a decent salary, a competitive salary, maybe a pension plan maybe sickness benefits, health benefits, all that kind of stuff that allows you then to buy your own home, have a family, go on a vacation or two every year, maybe have a car or two, a pet or two. And to an extent, you know, in, in the industrial age, driven by the kind of thinking of people like Frederick Wilmslow Taylor, which the industrial model being focused on efficiency, because if you create efficiency, you increase productivity. If you increase productivity, you gain more profit. If you plow that profit back into efficiency, you create the perfect cycle of industrial thinking, right? which is all born out of that same thing about we must find certainty. And when we find it in our lives, we have to cling on to it. So is it any wonder that at every level of our existence, once we get to kind of the early teenage years of our lives, Anything around change, uncertainty, doing something different feels horrific to us, not just because we feel like we're being pulled out of our comfort zone, but because we've actually been taught that that's counterintuitive because reward comes from getting your head down and building certainty in your life. And of course, what we've seen really increasingly over the last half century is a world that has been spinning more and more out of control, rapidly changing. And we've seen the results of a not-fit-for-purpose education system raising people who believed they were doing the right things in the right way, finding it increasingly hard to exist in that world. You know, whether it's, let's go back nearly 20 years to the global economic crisis, or more recently, obviously, the pandemic, or the war on mainland Europe, or the rise of technological advancement, which, of course... AI is now sending educators into a tailspin because of things like chat GPT or, you know, the environmental shifts that are causing global economic shifts that are causing all kinds of challenges for humanity and the socio-ethnic friction that we're seeing as a result of all of those things. And what that's resulted in is good, hardworking people in pretty much every developed country in the world going, but you promised me that if I got my head down, did what I was told, clenched onto the certain paths and routes I was taken down, my life would be okay and groovy. And of course, what we've seen increasingly is more and more and more people who have done that all of their lives, who now find themselves unemployed, find themselves in a shifting jobs market, threatened by technology or environmental change or global economic shift, and they're angry, right? So then what? 
we've seen across the world is a rise in populism, whether it's populist extreme right or left-wing politics across Europe or America or Latin America, whether it's isolationism caused by similar things, including Brexit, where I live. The truth is people aren't mad or bad, but they're bloody angry and they're angry because we set them up to fail in a world that no longer exists. And I think what we've realized in my work around change really stems from my career as an educator. I was very lucky. You know, I always worked in schools that had early years kindergarten environments, you know, kids who started formal education at three. And what I saw in my three to five-year-olds in the schools I was lucky enough to work in were the world's greatest experts in change. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm yet to meet a four-year-old child that's going through counselling because they can't cope with the rate of uncertainty and change in their lives. I remember when I was training to be a teacher, one of my lecturers, and I don't know how you percentage it, but saying something to me that, that I will never forget because the sentiment is so powerful. I remember she said, you know, Richard, we learn somewhere between 70 and 75% of everything we learn in our lifetime before we're five. And even then, that really resonated for me because actually what that said to me was what a waste then of human potential. If from five to the time we die, we're only going to pick up another 25% of evolution, change, learning different stuff. And before anyone sort of thinks about that, I'm not talking about the knowledge that comes with experience or content. But if you think about those first five years of life, most of us learn to walk and talk. We learn to understand body language, facial expression. We learn to make sense of the sensory world around us. You know, if we're born into multilingual homes, by the time we're five, we're speaking every language spoken in our domestic environment. We are incredible learning machines. And I think for me, the link between change and learning is almost inextricable. I think the two are the same. And actually, what we need to do is do a far better job at creating lifelong learners, because if we can create lifelong learnacy, we can actually create generations of people that can cope with change, uncertainty, and the shifting times much better than we did. Well, you've already answered my next question. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's where I was going to go. Like With all of the uncertainty in the world, what are the skills that we really should be imparting to kids? What are the things they need to know? And we focus a lot on lifelong learning. And that's a huge piece of it because you can learn anything if you love to learn. You don't need to be filled with content. You don't need to be given a bunch of knowledge. You don't need to have the answers to everything. You need to have the ability and the desire to go learn the things that you want to learn. Yeah. And, and you need to be skeptical. You know, you need to be questioning and challenging. A few years ago, I was lucky enough to interview Barry Barish. And I don't know if any of our listeners will recognize the name, but he's an American who won the 2017 Nobel Prize for Physics. And I remember going through, and I won't tell the whole story now because in the interests of economies of time, but I asked him what kind of people he was looking for when he set about building a team of people that went on to win a Nobel Prize for physics. And amongst a number of pearls of wisdom, which you can imagine, he's a remarkable man. He said, well, one of the things we needed, of course, was three-dimensional people. He said, because the problem with science, as with most walks of life, is the irony is the further up the system you get, the more narrow your experience and focus becomes, You know, the more expert, the more specialized. He said, and that is particularly 
amplified in the world of science. He said, and if you're looking to break paradigms, to innovate, to change, to transform the way people think and see the world, you can't have people sat in a room who all think and do the same thing based on the same experiences because you breathe increasingly stale air. He said, so I needed three-dimensional people. And then he said something which I think is one of the most beautiful and poetic things I've ever heard. And I think it should be the headline aspiration for anyone involved in education. Because he said, what we needed, Richard, were people who had the courage to challenge the beauty of the proof. And in a way, it speaks to what you just said. What we need to develop in generations of young people is not the ability to sit there and accept what they're told and move on and then wait for the next thing to remember what they're told. It's genuinely to develop people who have the courage to challenge the beauty of the proof. The problem with so many people in so many walks of life, and particularly in developed countries, is I think when you look back through history, whether it's the Roman or Greek empires or anything forwards from that, and by the way, I hesitate to say, you know, the UK and the US now, the most dangerous thing for our society is complacency. And the problem with complacency is people become complacent when everything's okay and working. And by the time they realize things aren't okay and working, it's too late. And if we don't develop a culture of the courage to challenge the beauty of the proof, the problem is we just all sit there generation after generation going, well, that's all okay. Everything's working fine. And by the time we realize it isn't, it's too late and we're playing catch up, which in so many ways is the most profound problem with the way we see life right now. You know, whether it's dealing with global health problems, whether it's dealing with the global challenges around the environment, shifting economics or whatever else it is, we always wait until we're being reactive. And so how do we create generations who are more proactive than we were? How do we create generations that have the courage to challenge the beauty of the proof? And how, as an education system, do we make that the heart of what we try to do? I'm going to ask a question, and I'm going to give some more context to the question. But my thought with that is, where does curiosity fall in there? And I came to that question because I think so much, and you kind of covered this briefly, but so much of our education is we expect our students to take what we're teaching them at face value, learn the knowledge and content, spit it back on a test so that they get an A so that we can reward them and say, yes, you understood the things that I taught you. But within that cycle, we're not teaching them to be curious or to ask questions or to dig deeper or to look for other connections. And so if we're going to build an education system or a society that has the courage to challenge the beauty of truth, where does curiosity fit in there? That's absolutely core, I think, Tanya. And and I actually think we ought to reverse the question. Going back to what I said before about young children under five, the question we should be asking is, what are we doing to destroy human instinct to curiosity? We're born curious. It's why we learn at such a phenomenal rate, right? And I mean, it's why we're dangerous as very young children too. Any of us that have had young children in our families will know what I'm talking about, right? All you need is a kid to stick their finger in a hole that actually is where the electricity comes out of, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Or they pull the cord of the kettle in the kitchen, pardon me, or whatever else it is, because they're curious. What's this do? What's that? Why is this connected to that? How does that work? Quick curiosity story. 
we have a fire alarm pull right near our back door. It's bright red. It's a square. We tell the kids not to pull it. Don't touch it. It's not for touching. Don't do that. And there was a kid a year ago who all the time, what's it do? How do you know? Why shouldn't I touch it? Always asking questions, never touched it. A year later, he's a year older. One day, just curiosity gets the best of him and he grabs the fire alarm and he pulls it down as the alarm goes off. The strobes go off. It's loud. It's a big ruckus. And we look at him, we're like, why did you do that? You know that you're not supposed to do that. We've had this conversation over and over. And he goes, I was just so curious. <laughs> so true, right? Reminds me, my mother was an only daughter. She had two brothers who were older than her. and She was the youngest. And she told me this story years ago when her middle brother was about six or seven. Apparently, he dug a hole in one of the walls, you know, as kids do in the house. And his father went bananas and got a guy in to come and repair the damage and everything was sorted out and the kid was forgiven. Anyway, two days later, there was an even bigger hole in the same spot. And my grandfather turned around to him and said, what on earth are you doing? We've just repaired it. He said, I know, but I was looking for the original hole because it had disappeared. Now, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> it's beautiful and it's not all at once. But my point is this. It's not how do we teach children to be curious. It's what do we do to children to drive the curiosity out of them? And in a way, it goes back to this point about if you create, which we did 100 plus years ago, a system of education predicated on efficiency and productivity, just prove you can do the same thing over and over again because we need you to work in a factory or we need you to work on a production line that basically all you need to do is be accurate and know it and do the same thing over and over again is kind of fine. The problem is we're not living in that world anymore. And the weird thing is the answers lie in kids under five. And how do, it goes back to Barry Barish. Kids under five have the courage to challenge the beauty of the proof. They do it all the time. I think one of the great sadnesses that I have in life is kids stop asking stupid questions the older they become. And then when we become adults, we label them stupid questions because we think we'll be judged if we say something in front of our peers that doesn't appear logical or correct. We've all been as adults in meetings in our schools or our professional working environments where we're desperate to say we don't understand or I've got an idea, but we don't, do we? Because we don't want to open our mouths and feel we've been judged for being stupid or not up to the job or whatever else it might be. So the question for me is how do we reverse engineer the system from five up? What is it we do to kids that drives it out of them rather than what do we do to teach it to them? How do we keep doing what we do in preschool and kindergarten through the years so that we retain that sense of wonder and curiosity? Absolutely. Look, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that knowledge isn't valuable. I'm not saying we don't need to teach children basic skills to read, write, do math and science, because we absolutely do. Picasso painted extraordinary things because he understood what the colors on his palette did and how to use them. So it's not an either or. But what we mustn't do is believe that education is this form of purgatory where we're just going to fill your heads with stuff. And when you're 18 or 21, then you can apply it creatively because by then it's too late. We need to build a system where all of those things are happening together in harmony. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you a completely different kind of question now. And this is one of the questions that I ask all of my guests, and it is about your memories from elementary school. 
since I run an elementary school, I love to hear what other people remember from that time in their lives. So can you share a story that you remember from your primary years? I absolutely can. So when I was seven, my parents went through a really spectacularly messy divorce. And when I was seven, divorce wasn't something that society kind of accepts as they do now. It was very much a taboo. And it was a really messy, nasty divorce. Anyway, as a result, as a seven-year-old kid, some of the anxieties I started to show included developing a nervous stammer, which, given what I've done for the last 18 years of my life as a profession, is pretty remarkable. But I developed a stammer, a really nervous stammer. And I had one teacher, David Drew Smythe, whose passion was not only English, but drama. And he persuaded me to get involved in a play we were doing as kids. And I thought he was mad. Like he wanted me to have a speaking part. And I was like, well, you know, in my head, I was thinking I I can't. And his view was, if I was given somebody else's words to speak, I wouldn't feel as anxious. And maybe it would help me back onto a path of self-confidence. And it worked. I had a speaking role, a small one, and I delivered my lines perfectly. And the confidence that gave me helped me onto my road to recovery. And I think what was remarkable about David, which is true of teachers of any generation, is he was far more interested in us as individuals than us as percentage points. Because in those days, he didn't have to be worried about percentage points. But he really understood me. He got to know my mom because he wanted to understand what was happening at home. And as a result, he was able to help tailor a unique experience that helped me turn my life around as a young child. You know, if that teacher had just gone, yeah, we'll put him at the back of the class. That's what he is. We'll keep him happy, but he's got to just do the same thing everybody else does in the same way. Who knows? I may still have a psychological speech impediment. So yeah, he was a remarkable and magical man. And along with many memories, I think that has to be my most profound. What an amazing story. We always talk about the differences teachers can make. And sometimes it's one comment or one phrase written on a paper or one decision to put you in a speaking role that literally probably changed the trajectory of your life because of one other person that was in it. Absolutely. And I think all teachers, because I know, particularly with young teachers, early career teachers, who are obsessed with wanting to do the right thing in the right way. And I often say to them, look, there's going to be an awful lot of complexity that's thrown at you. But if you commit to knowing each and every child in your care, and you respond to those needs on a personal level using your instincts and your emotional intelligence, you will make an incredibly good teacher. And I think that is as true today as it was then. And One of the things I beg young teachers in particular to remember is that humanity and emotional intelligence is the greatest quality you take into a classroom because teaching kids how to multiply might help them further down the line. But understanding that child and their unique nature and how you respond to that will change that human being's life forever. Thank you, Richard. How can people get in touch with you? The easiest way is through my website, which is just richardgerver.com. There's email addresses, my social media stuff, and and all of that kind of stuff. And if people reach out to me, I make it my business to respond. So if anyone feels they want to know more, they want to connect directly, whatever, 
tell them, please, please, any of you, if you want to reach out to me, do. I promise to connect. That's an open invitation, Rebel Educators. Reach out to Richard, richardgerver.com, and his LinkedIn and socials will be in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time, Richard. This was a fantastic conversation. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me on. That's it for another episode of Rebel Educator. Thank you for joining us and thank you for spending your limited time with us learning how to be rebels in education. If you'd like to learn more or access our project library, you can go to rebeleducator.com. If you'd like to learn more about our progressive elementary and middle school in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out upacademy.com. Interested in learning more about our Rebel Literacy Project curriculum or launching your own school and joining our affiliate network? Visit projectup.us. And if you haven't read it yet, pick up your copy of my book, Rebel Educator, Create Classrooms Where Impact and Imagination Meet on Amazon or anywhere you read or listen to your books. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Look forward to talking to you soon. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Do you want to save time on prep work? Increase achievement for all student populations? Reliably meet Tier 1 standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.